You can turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. And continuing on in our verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of Colossians. Continuing on this theme, last week we saw how we are to guard ourselves from error. Um, now we kind of look at some of the, the specifics as Paul addresses them. Some of the specific things that the church of Colossae was dealing with. When you've gotten there, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? And we'll pick up verse 16. Read through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to humble our hearts. That we may see in this text, in these heresies that Paul is addressing, perhaps areas in our own life, in our own heart, that need to be weeded out. Because perhaps even subtly we believe the same things. God, show us as Christians, show us as a church, where we might need to be changed by your word. And Father, we know that change and application only comes through the power of the, of the Spirit. And so, God, we, we ask that you guide us now and help us. And it's through your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. There's an old church in Krakow, Poland, that has sounded a, a bugle or a trumpet from its steeple every single day for the last 700 years. And the last notes on the bugle that, that is always that is played is always muted and broken as, as if some disaster has happened to the player right at the last moment. And, and they do this in memory of a, of a heroic trumpeter who one night summoned the people to defend their city against the hordes of invading Tartars. The bugle player was shot with an arrow as he was sounding out the warning, and so his last note was, was muted and, and fading. And so they sort of commemorate that and remember that, what, this, this heroic person who had saved their city by blowing a, a trumpet every day with the last note sounding the way that it did that night. Our text today is a bugle, if you will. It is a warning 
to the church of Colossae of the danger that is upon them. And we saw last week that that imperative that sort of set the tone for this section of the the letter of, of Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And Paul was calling them to, to guard themselves from error, to not be, be held captive by the philosophies of men. And, and we talked last week of sort of the, the how and the why we are to guard ourselves from error. And now in, in our text, Paul is going to get very specific about the dangers that that church was facing. He has heard from Epaphras the doctrines that have begun to infiltrate this church. And so he is going to face them head on. He's going to warn them and instruct them, this church, concerning these false teachings. And this is important for us, too, because there are elements of these dangers that we face today as Christians. Perhaps not in the exact same way that the Church of Colossae did, but but there are things that Paul warns against here that we are very much in danger of, that Christianity today is very much in danger of. And so this morning, as we seek to make sure that we are guarding ourselves from error, as we're commanded to do, we're going to explore three categories of heresy that that Paul addresses with his church, things that they were struggling with, so that we can hopefully, as a church, as Christians, think biblically about those categories. And so I'm going to address the categories as best I can as Paul saw them in his day. I'm going to use some terms that have been applied in many different ways throughout history. And, and so I'm going to try to define them very carefully in terms of how Paul viewed them in his day. And so we don't make wrong applications and wrong uh, assumptions about how different people have used those terms today. Uh, Paul begins this section by, by almost easing the guilt and fear of condemnation for those who have truly trusted in Christ in the church in Colossians, at Colossae. And so his point is for them here is to avoid legalism. And that's sort of the first category of thought that, that we're going to think through of, uh, that, that Paul is addressing here is legalism. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful news that you could ever share with someone. It's the most important truth for your life. The gospel is the message that, that we are sinners who stand condemned before God, but, but God made a way for us to be forgiven and saved from this condemnation. He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And He rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. That all who believe in Him, all who trust in Him, all who who turn from their sins in repentance and have genuine faith in Jesus are saved. That's the gospel message. And it is a message. uh, Salvation is is purely a work of God. Paul would say that by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so God gives us the gift of faith. We believe and we are saved. And God saves apart then from any workings of our own. In Colossians 2.6, when Paul tells them to root themselves in what they were taught, that's what they were taught. That you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
But the Jews in Colossae were saying to these new Gentile converts, no, 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 no. You need to obey all these rituals and laws to be saved. You need to eat like we eat, observing the dietary code of Israel. You need to observe the Sabbath in the way that we have observed the Sabbath. You need to be circumcised. All these these different things they were beginning to impose upon these Gentile converts. If you want to be forgiven, then, then this is what is required of you. And so Paul tells them in verse 16 of our text, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul is there directly addressing legalism. So what is legalism? That term is not found in the Bible, but what legalism teaches is addressed here and many other places. Legalism says that salvation depends upon adhering to rules and regulation. It is to say that that by obeying the Word of God, by, by working to do what God has commanded, we can earn for ourselves salvation. That's, that's legalism. And really, every single man-made religious system is centered and based upon that principle. Muslims believe that that salvation requires adhering to the five pillars of Islam. The Quran says, to those who believe and do deeds of righteousness, hath Allah promised forgiveness and a great reward. It, It depends upon your own good deeds. You do enough, you will be saved. Mormonism says that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. And so they would say that we're saved by grace, but, but only after we have done all that we can do in our workings in order to, to earn that grace. Hinduism, the way to achieve sort of their version of salvation uh, called moksha, and they describe all these, depending on which line of Hinduism, either three or four paths in order to achieve this. But if you look at them, they're all centered on this, of all these things that you do in order to achieve salvation. In Roman Catholicism, you must go through the the Catholic sacraments to earn grace. So the Council of Trent, uh, Canon 9, affirmed later by Vatican 1 and 2, says, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious are justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. And so, in other words, if you believe that you're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, then you are cursed by God. It requires your cooperation. And so every single man-made system, we can look through them all, depends upon that principle. Salvation depends upon our works, our obedience, our adherence to rules and laws. That's, that's legalism. But what does the Bible say? Paul said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We are made right before God because of Jesus Christ, not because of our works. And so we must avoid this mindset of having to earn God's favor, because you can't. You can never measure up. It will, and if you try, if, if that's your mindset, if, if I'm going to try to earn my, my way to favor with God, then it will leave you devastated and depressed because you cannot do it. Paul says that the law gives us knowledge of our sin. 
And so when we see our sin for what it is, we recognize that our only hope is to trust in Jesus because He is the one who did measure up. So these Gentile Christians are not to be judged by these laws that they are not upholding. They are saved by grace. And then the question becomes for us then though, if, if you're familiar with, with Christianity, particularly if you're, if you're familiar with the book of James and other places, well, well, why not? I mean, those who have been born again are supposed to live in, in obedience to God's word, right? I mean, the law, we recognize the law doesn't save us, but, but we who are saved have been changed by God. That's, that's what Jesus said. We've been born again. We're a new creation to not live in our sin, but to live in obedience to God. And so, why are they eating food that's forbidden in God's law? Why aren't they getting circumcised? Why aren't they observing the festivals? And what Paul says here, the new moon, that's uh, the monthly sacrifice that was, was offered on the first of every month. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 10. Why aren't they observing the Sabbath in, in the way that they were, they, the Jews had observed the Sabbath? And the answer to that, those questions is verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Did you know that your pastor has been accused on more than one occasion of being a hypocrite? More than once, I've been in conversations with, with an unbeliever who have, have accused me of being a hypocrite. And here's how the conversation typically goes. It goes something like this. I'm talking to this unbeliever about their sin and how there is hope in Jesus Christ. And they will say, you hypocrite. You're, you're a hypocrite. You pick and choose what to believe in the Bible. You say, you, you point to this verse that, that says this is a sin in my life. But here you are over here and you, you eat pork when the Bible says not to. You wear mixed fabrics. The Bible says not to. You eat shellfish. The Bible says not to. They're right. Leviticus 19 says, Don't wear a garment of cloth made of two types of material. Does that mean that everyone in here who's wearing polyester is, is in sin this morning? Are we picking and choosing what to obey in the Bible? Verse 17 is the answer to that question. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was a theocratic nation with governing laws set by God Himself. In other words, their religion was also their government. And so God made governing laws for this nation that set them apart from other nations. And you can kind of see them in three categories. There are ceremonial laws, there are dietary laws, and there are moral laws. And they were a constant reminder that this is to be a different nation. And so their laws looked very different than the other nations that were around them. But Paul says that, that these things were a shadow of what was to come. The festivals that they were by law to, 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 to perform and to observe, those festivals were pointing to Jesus. 
The Sabbath was pointing to Jesus. The sacrificial system, the sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore because Jesus was the final lamb. He fulfilled the purposes of the sacrificial system. He's the substance, Paul says. So when Jesus came and the theocratic nation of Israel ended and the church began, the ceremonial and the dietary laws expired. They accomplished their purpose. Jesus has come. Now you have these moral laws in the Old Testament that have not expired. When we worship God, it is an experience. We should be full of emotion when we consider who God is and what He has done for us. I mean, how could, how could we not be full of emotion when we are in the worship of God? I mean, just read through the Psalms and you can hear it in their voice as you read them. The emotion as they are worshiping God. I'm not saying we're emotionless robots. What I am saying is to avoid mysticism as Paul describes it. To not look to experiences to know God as our foundation, but look to Christ and His Word to know God. They are sufficient. You know, emotions can come and go. They're easily manip- manipulated. But Christ and His Word are firm and immovable. I've ridden exactly two horses in my life. The first was one of those places that you, you go to and you pay a fee. And, and that horse was considered what's called a dead broke horse. You get on the horse, and there is nothing you can do to move that horse away from the trail. That, that horse has walked that trail over and over and over its entire life. That there is nothing you can do to get off course. There's no danger you can get in by riding that horse. It's a dead broke cork. All it will, horse, all it will do is, is walk the trail that it has walked a million times. The second horse that I have ridden was a girlfriend of mine at the time's horse who was young and still being trained. I got up on that horse, and let me tell you, that horse would not be controlled. That horse will get you in all kinds of places that you do not want to be. That is a dangerous horse to ride until it is more well-trained. Friends, that's your emotion and experiences. They are not inherently bad, but you can't trust them to keep you on course. Christ and His Word, when diligently studied and wisely interpreted, will never lead you off course. You jump on the horse of your subjective experience and you may find yourself in a world of danger. You jump on the horse of God's Word and you will never be led astray. Paul says, hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Christ. The trumpet is sounded. Avoid mysticism, Paul says. The final warning Paul gives is, is sort of a subcategory uh, alluded to earlier of mysticism. And Paul mentioned it specifically, and then he goes in greater detail, and that is to avoid asceticism. Avoid asceticism. And so we saw Paul mention it there in verse 18. And then starting in verse 20, he kind of goes in further depth about it. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
So to practice asceticism is to to live a life of rigorous self-denial. Deny yourself, become poor, forsake sometimes even the, the basic needs of your life in order to gain favor with God and gain spirituality. That's the, the, the goal of asceticism. Purposely being for for the sake of gaining favor with, with God. Uh, the most extreme forms of asceticism would even go as far as to, to harm yourself in, in order to gain spirituality, favor with God. And so he looks at those things, these instructions that were given to the church. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's addressing asceticism. And Paul says that when you died with Christ, you, you died to these philosophies. You died to these things. You are alive in Christ. Now go enjoy God and all the blessings that God gives you. You are free from these man-made rules that promote spirituality. He says this is a worldly practice. Now, don't get me wrong. The Christian life is a life of discipline, isn't it? Denying our old sinful self. And sometimes, in fact, it is, is wise and good for us to deny ourselves of certain things. Isn't that what fasting is? We deny ourselves food for the, the intent purpose of, of worship and prayer. And that's not what Paul's addressing here. That's not the asceticism that Paul is talking about. Asceticism is, is where we are, why we pursue these, this poverty, this denying ourselves in order to be considered righteous. In order, sometimes even to, to display to others and, and pride our righteousness. Remember when Jesus addressed those who were, who were fasting? He said, your, your reward is, is the fame you're getting from it. They were fasting in the public. And he said, your reward is this right here. The, the eyes that are upon you because you're boasting in your fasting. We're not ascetics. We're disciplined as Christians, but we're not ascetics. Paul has done what few pastors are willing to do today, which is to warn the church of their dangerous practices and false beliefs. He has sounded the trumpet, avoid legalism, avoid mysticism, avoid asceticism. So consider with me for a moment the full chapter 2 here and what chapter 2 has been saying if you've been with us the last couple weeks. Saying don't be taken captive by these philosophies of men. And Paul knows that they are not the foundation of the church. Jesus is the foundation of the church. He says in Jesus the fullness of deity dwells. He is the head of the church. He is the authority of the church. He says go back to what you were first taught. Ground yourself in Him, in Christ. Walk in Him, Paul says. You don't need these philosophies. Christ is enough. I pray that that's our attitude. Christian, I pray that 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 is your attitude. I pray that that is our attitude as a church, that Christ is is sufficient, that He is enough, that He's the foundation of our church. And if you find in your heart an area that that is not true, let's make it so. Pray with me. Oh, Father, help us to trust solely in You. Not trusting in our experiences that can be manipulated. 
But Father, to hand those things over to you in worship. To use our full emotions to, to worship you who is the head of the church. Father, help us understand your word. God, we worship you now because of your son Jesus and what he has done for us. And saving wretched sinners like us and dying on the cross for us. Father, help us leave as we leave this place to live in obedience to you, to live in discipline to you, but also to understand your grace. We don't have to earn your favor, Father, that it was earned for us in Jesus Christ, that you bestow it upon us, not because of our works, but because of your purposes and your will. Let us rest in those truths. Let me worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.